Our passage this morning is Philippians 2, 1 through 11, uh, and you can turn there with me uh, in your Bible. Uh, there should be a Bible in the pew and in, in the seats in front of you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brandon. We have uh, been for the last two weeks, be the third of six sermons in this new series called Broken and Beautiful. Uh, Broken and Beautiful uh, is a descriptor not only of this series, but of our church. We are a church that hopes to be broken and beautiful. Um, so far, we've covered in the first sermon our mission. What is a mission? The mission answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing in the day-to-day? -day? Uh, the summary that we went over that day was gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. Gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. And as we do that, we as broken people are gathered together as we're gathered in God's grace uh, we're assembled into something that we believe by the grace of God is beautiful. In fact, if you recall, that's why this window is up here. This is a visible representation of who we hope to be as a church. We're not perfect in any way. We are broken, and yet by God's grace, the Creator, the artist, He is making us more beautiful as a conglomerate. Uh, the, the last two, uh, this, this sermon and the last sermon, we've started on our values. Values are the unique characteristics uh, that we wish to be true of our church. Last week, Steve did a great job uh, expressing our desire to be a church that is searching, going out, finding the lost, being a, a corner bearer, as he put it. Uh, each value uh, is a kind of a way to think about it is how do we want people to feel when they're around us as a group and as individuals who are part of this church? That's what a value is. It's something you exude, something that, that naturally uh, is something that defines who you are and who we are. Uh, today's value that we're talking about is welcome. Welcome. So search, and now we talk about welcome. Let me tell you uh, what we believe. What we believe uh, if we embody this value of welcoming, what we will be like as a church. We will welcome every type of person and every type of situation from every type of background into our community with friendship. Every type of person, every type of situation, every type of background. Uh, Grace, this is the kind of church we want to be like. Amen? Amen. That's who we want to be like. Now, every value has 
two kind of, it's like a sliding scale between actual and aspirational. And, and this is where things get a little controversial for us on this value. I think we need to tread lightly as a church on this value. Uh, let me talk about it this way. Julie and I, you don't get ice cream for this one, sorry, Julie. Um, Julie and I, with the kids occasionally, will watch cooking shows, and we've been watching Chopped Junior recently. And Chopped, if you're not familiar, they give you a mystery box of sometimes foul ingredients. You've got to make a delicious meal out of it. Well, with kids, they do something similar. They kind of make it easy. But what I'm noticing with Chopped Junior is as they're introducing these 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, these kids who are competing talk like they are adults. I have a sophisticated palate. I'm going to mow down. It's like, listen, first of all, you're 11. Okay? Second of all, you're 11, all right? You don't, you don't know what a sophisticated palate is. You can't have one at 11 years old. You may be ahead of the curve, but you don't know what you're talking about. Um, listen, don't answer this question. Don't answer this question. Is, are we a welcoming church? Is this an actual or aspirational value for us? Listen, I think it's great that we are in Philippians this morning because there is some connection here for us. Philippians was a Roman city near a major highway in ancient times. Paul had planted a church there. He is writing to the Philippian church, who were his friends, uh, from prison. And what we learn from the, the text of the whole book is that the Philippians were faithful partners in the gospel with Paul. They were faithful partners. They weren't like haywire like the Corinthians. They just were all messed up. The Philippians actually seemed to be fairly healthy. However... Paul's letter to them is calling them to something, calling them to further unity and further maturity. I think that that is a perfect place for us to connect with the Philippian church on this value of welcoming. Listen, are we a welcoming church? Some would say yes. Some would say yes. Do we have a ways to go? Absolutely, church. We are called like the Philippians, although we're not fighting against God in this idea of being a welcoming place for every type of person, from every type of situation, from every type of background, we have some maturing to do. There's some unity that we need to gain in this area as a church. And so if you want to think about it this way, we're much like a 10-year-old on Chopped Junior. Do we have a sophisticated palate? Maybe, comparatively. I don't know, but we have some growing to do. And that's what this passage is going to call us to this morning. And so, let's define welcoming before we pray and jump into the text. What are we called to do as we become a welcoming church? Welcoming is an ever-deepening, gospel-centered, I love my hyphenated words this week, ever-deepening, gospel-centered humility that causes us to think less of ourselves and more of others. Welcoming is an ever-deepening, gospel-centered humility that causes us to think less of ourselves and more of others. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would use me as your mouthpiece this morning. May my words not count, but may your spirit take what I have to say and impress upon our hearts what we need to hear. May we be challenged as a church this morning. May we not rest where we are. May thinking we are welcome enough, may we press forward in the example of Christ in humility to think more of others and less of ourselves in an ongoing cycle of repentance. And I pray, Lord, and I thank You for our new members. May we continue to add to our number, not for number's sake, but for a, 
a gathering of people here who are broken, who know they're broken, who desire to live out the gospel. And I pray for those who have been members, those who are regular attenders, those who are new members, that we would hear this morning the call to advance in our welcoming spirit, that our, our, our spirits and our hearts we put in a posture of humility that we may not be self-serving, but other-serving. It's a lot to ask for from a human being, so I, I rely on your spirit to, to bring this message this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, I believe, as I was preparing this sermon, I believe that we have a, a, a strong hunger at our church to be a welcoming place. I believe that. I believe we, we want, as a church, from its very inception, to be a place where truly every kind of person, every situation, every background can come and feel welcomed, feel friendship. Um, there's, there's only one place to start if we want to satiate that hunger, and that is the secure love of Christ for His people. Look at verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Stop there. So it looks as if Paul's asking a question, but really the way this is worded, he is giving uh, a facts about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Really, instead of if there is any, it should say since there. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection from sympathy. What this means, church, is that we are secure. First of all, listen to this this morning. We are secure in our salvation. This is not just a statement out of the blue. This is a continuation of a conversation that Paul is having with the Philippians. You go back to chapter 1 and he's talking about these hardships that they're experiencing in their immediate context. The, the town of Philippi was a place where they were heavy into the worship of former Caesars. So they were worshiping former men who they raised up as a deity. And if you did not bow the knee to Caesar or former Caesars, you were persecuted. And so the Philippians are going through this. And he says, listen, as you stand firm in one heart, one mind, caring for each other, you, this is proof of not only the, the condemnation of the world, but your salvation. And here's what he says, and that from God. Where does salvation come from? Not because of our good works. Not because we're awesome. Not because we have a boy band now, right? None of those things save us. None of those things save us. Our salvation comes from one place and one place alone, God. He gives it freely. And so this list is not a question. It's a statement of benefits that we find as we have faith in Christ. So Christian, encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. These aren't things to gain. They're things you already have. They're yours. They're secure. And so the reasons he's giving in, in verse 1 to, to give the command he's giving later are this. First of all, we get encouragement in Christ. The, these words mean a source of comfort in hard, hard times. That's what the, the Philippians, although they're faithful, are struggling in their culture. They're struggling to, to, to be welcomed and they're struggling and they're undergoing persecution. And so what do they have in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Encouragement. They also have comfort from love. Charles Spurgeon says it better than I could, so I'm just going to read him. Talking about this phrase, comfort is the dropping of a gentle dew from heaven on desert hearts beneath. True comfort, such as can reach the heart, must be one of the choicest gifts of divine mercy and can be found nowhere save in Christ who has come down from heaven, who has again ascended to heaven to provide strong and everlasting comfort 
for those who have been bought with his blood. That's a fact. It's not something you have to, to work hard for, read your Bible enough for, pray for. It's something that Christ provided by coming, dying, raising, and going back to heaven. It's yours, 100%. We also have participation in the Spirit. This is the truth of Christian empowerment. Church, we are capable. We are made capable. Remember, we've talked about this verse several times in the last few weeks. Ezekiel, he tells about when God would have a new covenant and he would what? Rip out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. For what purpose? To finally be able to obey his commandments. We are participants in that spirit. The spirit that, that went over the waters to create the world. The spirit that, that descended down to Christ at his baptism. is the same spirit that lives in us and empowers us. We participate in it. It's a fact. A fact. Wow. Okay. We're not traversing this life alone. We have divine help. We also have affection and sympathy. Now, this is kind of a two-sided coin. Not only do we get affection and sympathy from God because He understands all of human pain, all of human pain, He's experienced it through Jesus Christ, we're also receiving affection and sympathy as God has planned it through fellow Christians. As we're unified in Christ, as we exist as a church, we are called to show one another affection and sympathy. And this is ours in Christ. And so these things, when we have faith in Christ, we are safe in our salvation. We're safe in our... We're guaranteed the love of Christ. How do we know that? The proof of love is what Christ did, what He provided in and by his coming to earth. And so we look at verses 6-11 through 11 for our proof of love. How do we know Christ loves us? How do we know that these things are for sure? What Jesus Christ did. Look at this. Verse 6. Who, though He was in the form of God, stop there, this means the exact imprint. Uh, if you want a more technical definition, the, a form that expresses full essence. That's fun to say. A form that expresses full ev- essence. Jesus is God. He's not a good teacher. He's not just a cool dude. He is God in the flesh. He is in the form of God. It continues, but he, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This has been a verse that has been used by many cults to explain why Jesus isn't God, but here's what this means. It means that Jesus, this word grasped, means to be robbed for personal gain. Even though Jesus had rightful ownership of glory and honor, what did He do? He did not hold it for Himself. He left it for God the Father. He did not wield His Godhood for Himself. And in fact, it continues, but instead of wielding that for Himself, He emptied Himself. You look at verses 9-11, through this is not something that Jesus earned by His behavior. This is what He has deserved and experienced before He came. He was highly exalted. He has the name above all names. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses that He is Lord. That is who Christ is. He deserved all that. And instead of living a human life that exhibited all those characteristics, He what? Emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. This is not a loss of power. This is not a loss of power. Remember what Steve read last week in Mark 2. Jesus is preaching. And and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of grumbling in their hearts. And what does it say? He perceived in his spirit what they were questioning. That's a divine power that Christ had. And then we also see in his life in just what way he submitted himself. I think Matthew 26, 
as we grow close to the cross, as Jesus grows closer and closer to his torturous death, we have this little tidbit of a story. And it says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face, Jesus did, prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Did Jesus want to go to the cross? Was it a fun idea? No. But what does he say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is the picture of Christ emptying himself. He is God in the flesh, and yet he submits to the plan of the Father. He full, more fully submitted, as we see here, by what? Becoming, uh, by being born in the likeness of men at the end of verse 7. So Jesus is not only fully God, he's also fully man. You read in Romans 5 how it was a necessity for Christ to be human, for us to have eternal life. It says in Romans 5, death came through one man, Adam, so life comes to those who believe through Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God, fully man, the mediator between God and man. And the summary statement here is, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, imagine this, part of the Trinity, God the Son, in all of his glory, sharing that glory in all that relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit, what did he do? Did he stay? No. He humbled himself. He brought himself low is the literal translation of the word humble. He brought himself low and he did not wield his divine power for personal benefit. Think about this. He wielded his power and his human nature for us. That's, how, that's why he wielded it. That's, that's how he used it to save his people. Now let's pause right there. This is called, if you want to use a technical term that has a little bit of a negative connotation in our culture, this is the condescension of Christ. Christ condescended. He was high. He is above humans. And yet, what did he do? He became low. He became like us. He came to get us. He got his hands dirty. Why? To gather us in, church. To gather us in. Here's the reality. This, verses 6-11, through 11, is the divine welcome wagon. This is how Christ welcomes us. This is how He does it. It's not some cool truth that, that's adjacent to His welcoming. His welcoming is an emptying. It's a humbling. It's a becoming. He didn't wait for us to change. He didn't wait for sinful, broken humans to make their way to Him like every other religion in the world teaches. He didn't alienate Himself, remaining aloof, this deistic God who sets things in motion and then stays out of it. He came down, lived a life amongst wretched sinners. He invited us in. He welcomed us in. We were on the outside. This truth demands a response of knowing faith. It demands it. So this morning, if, if you have never given your life to Christ, you've never believed this, you've never, maybe the way you could say it is trusted your life to Christ or your eternity to Him, listen, this is a powerful truth. You need to understand that Jesus isn't waiting for you to change. He's not waiting for you to straighten your life out so He can finally accept you. He has come to you in your need. He welcomes you in your need. And He calls you, this safe, powerful, loving Savior calls you to follow Him. That's it. That's the good news of this truth. 
So we start in this idea that we are securely loved by and in Christ. And that is not only the starting place of salvation, it's the starting place, church, of our pursuit of being a welcoming place. We have to understand this truth. We are securely loved by our Jesus. Securely loved. Now, this secure salvation comes in hand with another beautiful truth, and I call it the sacred capability of Christians. The sacred capability of Christians. Look at verse 2 and the end of verse 5 with me. Paul says, okay, since there are these things, since these things are true, let's talk about what is next. What is next? Complete my joy, he tells them, by being of the same Mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 5, and having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul is saying. Since there is comfort and security in Christ, unity and love for one another is possible. It's possible. It's not something you strive for. It's actually something that can happen. Look at this. Real unity. He says, he says it this way. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And he says again, um, in verse 5, this mind among yourselves. This is possible through Jesus Christ. See, Paul, what he's asking, what he wants from the Philippians is for them to be unified in heart and in head. And so when we adopt the biblical categories of people that are in the Scriptures, there's only two. There is in Christ and not in Christ. When we have those categories in our mind, when we are in Christ, there is built-in possible unity among God's people. You see that? And this is the only place in the church when we're found in Christ, with faith in Christ, is the only place in this entire world where actual unity can be witnessed. Real unity. And it all happens through the power of of the Spirit. One scholar says this, this is where our bond is. It's receiving the same truth, contending for the same faith. That's our unity. And it's possible as we learn from Christ, as we follow Christ, as we become like Christ, we are bound to one another, church. Where does division come from then? Division comes when we slip into the thinking of worldly categories. The world has subcategory after subcategory after subcategory of different types of people, different types of things, different situations, and those things don't exist in the church. It's not biblical to think that way. We are in Christ. We are unified. We also have the ability for, for the same love. He calls it same love in verse 5, and when he says, uh, in, at the end of verse 5, full accord. This means unity not only in mindset, but also in character and affection. So this unity of love. You see, we can't love one another, and I hopefully get an amen on this one, through human effort. It's too hard to, to choose to love one another. It's too hard. Yet, through this sure love of Christ that overflows to us as we recognize what Christ has done for us, and as the Spirit works and changes our heart, we gain a love for one another through the power of the Spirit. We're capable of this. It's now possible through the work of Christ. So why, where am I getting all this? How do we know that these things are possible? The end of verse 5. Where does this the same mind, where does this same love come from? It, it's yours already in Jesus Christ, in verse 5. Which is yours in Christ. These are capabilities that we have, not because we're great people, 
Not because God chose well, but because we are infused. We've been given the Spirit of God. It's a sacred capability. And so as we embrace these truths, as we live out the reality that that we are capable through the Spirit of, of having real unity amongst ourselves and sharing real love with each other, some things come out of that. First of all, real humility. Real humility comes out of that reality. Personal pride is washed away only by the power and the grace of God. You can't, you can't undo your own pride by trying. Because guess what? If you succeed, you're going to bolster your own pride. It only happens through Christ. We can understand our personal sin only through the illumination of the Spirit. Only through the illumination of the Spirit. Only by the Spirit let, making us and, and letting us look face to face in the deep darkness of our hearts Can we be honest about who we are because of what Christ has done? And only through the Spirit can we actually see that the thing we've done has grieved God the Father and nailed Christ to the cross. Only through the Spirit can we see that the wages of my sin, Ransom Kent, is death. We understand the cost of that sin by the sacrifice of Christ. We understand how our salvation was secured by that same work. These are things that cause humility because they remind us we're we're nothing. But without Christ, we're nothing. We can't just, I think I can, our way to humility. It doesn't work that way. Be more humble, be more humble. Nope, not going to happen. It doesn't happen that way. It's only by the power of the Spirit. It also begets this, this ability to, to, to have real self-sacrifice in our life. Real self-sacrifice. So certainly, the reality of Christ's sacrifice informs what our sacrifice should look like. But again, the Spirit empowers our sacrifice. We're not just left with an example of Christ and now, hey, best of luck, get to it. No, the Spirit it changes our hearts. And it gives us our, a love for one another. And I hope you've experienced this, but I, I believe that many of you have seen when you know a, a brother or a sister who's in deep need and, and something inside of you sparks in a love for them and you're willing to give all of yourself to help them. I hope you've experienced that. That's not you being a good person. That's the Spirit alive and well in your heart. It's a sacred capability. So since we have this secure love, and since we have real capability, Paul and Christ included, asked us to comply with some responsibilities as well. So Christ is asking in this passage His well-welcomed, empowered children to do something. To do something. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Verse 4 there, um, it, it literally means look not to yourself, but look to others. Look not to yourself, but look to others. Christ has securely loved us first. He's empowered us by the Spirit second. And now He's saying, in that new, in that secure love, and in that power of the Spirit, here's what I'm calling the church to do. The first thing he's asking us to do is to live our lives in never-ending repentance. 
never-ending repentance. I talk with a lot of dads. Uh, I talk with a lot of husbands. And one of the things I try to communicate is we're not called to be the best husband or the best father. We're called to be repentant husbands and repentant fathers. That's really the best we could hope to be. If it's about a competition, who's best? There's, there's no sense in that. We're called to, to look at Christ and let Christ change us and the Spirit empowers us and to repent in those roles. And so the first thing the verse wants us to do is to check our selfish ambition and conceit. This, these words mean a strong drive for personal success. Strong drive for personal success. Now, here's where things get tricky. This is not just about business. Like, uh, in the business world, I want to succeed and climb the ladder. Listen, this takes place in the church with good things. Think about this. There are times in my life where what do I want to do? I really want to make a difference in someone's life. That sounds so good, doesn't it? But guess what? It sometimes is all about me. I want to be successful in that thing. And it's about me. And every time, Every time, our ambition, our agenda will cause division. That's what it does. Either your expectations are let down or you feel like a failure or someone feels pressured by you. No matter what, when we're on our agenda, our ambition, it will cause division. Hence, the command here is to consider others better than yourself. Better. Others better than you. It's a call to let the Spirit change and motivate your heart to meet people where they're at. So in humility, in the humility exhibited by Christ, the humility that comes from our pursuit of Christ, the humility we're empowered to have through the Holy Spirit, we're called to submit our minds to Christ. To read His Word. Let Him change us. To meditate on His Word. To meditate on who He is, what He's calling us to do to pray for ourselves and others to be more like Christ. And to practice, and honestly, let's just be real, to practice and to sometimes fail miserably looking out for others before we look out for ourselves. That's what we're called to do. It's the first thing. Ongoing repentance of our self-ambition and conceit. Reading this morning, Paul David Tripp, New Morning Mercies. I read that each Sunday in my office. And many times it coincides with what we're teaching. And so here's what Paul David Tripp had to say from that devotional this morning. Sin causes us to make everything about ourselves because sin at its base level is selfishness. We all still tend to shrink our worlds down to the small confines of our wants, needs, and feelings. This is the human heart, church. We've got to repent of that. It's not about sweeping it away. I'm good. No, well, there's never enough of not more of that. That doesn't make any sense. But you get the idea. Repent, repent, repent of what? Our self-ambition and our conceit. It's not about me. We're also to strive for that increase of maturity. That's what verse 5 says here. It says, or excuse me, verse 4 let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Paul is telling them, continue in this growing. Continue in this maturing. Continue in becoming more and more and more unified and loving. Paul finishes this section with the next couple of verses, and he says, therefore, my beloved, and many of you will recognize these verses, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to work at becoming more welcoming. Not by our bootstraps, but how? For it is God who works in you. God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's all there. The love is there. The capability is communicated. And the responsibility. The responsibility. And so what are we as a church? Let's, let's bring it down one more level. What about welcoming? What are we called to do? We're called, we're commanded to work at being more Christ-like in our welcoming. First of all, we're called to offer welcome to each other within the church. Listen, we're not perfect at this. Amen? We're not perfect at this. I would say this. If you wanted to compare churches, which is not healthy to do, we are a fairly healthy church. We're not rampant with, with problems and things like that of, of, that other churches have. We're a fairly healthy church, but again, we're kind of that 10-year-old with a sophisticated palate. We have growing to do. And... At times, we struggle, do we not, at showing each other Christ-like love. We struggle to give each other the benefit of the doubt. I know we do. I know we do. We're not always striving for one mind. And in fact, all of us at one time or another, we're on what agenda? Our own. That's what we are. All of us. Your pastor's not excluded from this. That will always cause division. And so what we must do is, is repent and strive for maturity in this area. Loving each other. Seeking unity in Christ. Receiving the same faith. Contending for the same faith. And As we look to our own interests, Christ and Paul together say, no, you're loved. You're capable Serve one another. That's the answer. Second, we're called to repent and strive for maturity as we offer welcome to all those who come here. All those who come to this building, this place, and spend time with us. Listen, whoever is here, whoever comes here, if they're not a brother or sister already, are a potential brother and sister. Do you hear that? God elected His people before time. We don't know who He's elected. And so we should welcome and share the, the, the community of faith with everyone that comes in. Every type of person. Every type of situation. Every type of background. Welcomed in with friendship. You see, in the church, we shouldn't preclude people from here because of something about them. Why? Because nothing precludes anyone from coming to the kingdom. Amen. Nothing. Nothing does. And so why should that be true of us? And listen, church, here's, here's something that we need to know. As we become more and more mature in, in this idea of welcoming, things will get uncomfortable here, and that's okay. It's okay. May we prepare our hearts and follow Christ so that when it happens, we can glorify God with our response. And it starts again with the love of Christ capability of humility and, and the practice of considering ourselves less than others. Lastly, it's not about just sitting and waiting in this building for, for the masses to come. Okay, It's not what it's about. It, this, is, this idea of welcoming is intimately connected to searching. 
as we mature as a body, as we mature as individuals, as we experience the unity and love in here, what happens? We should bring it out with us. Bring it out with us. We go out into the world and we carry this ever-deepening humility and we consider others as greater than ourselves. People will feel welcomed. And not just by you, but by Christ. So listen. Summary. Welcoming is more than being able to have a good conversation. It's part of it. It's more than just saying hi with a friendly face. It's more than just inviting people to life group or over to your house for dinner. Listen, it's deeper than mere actions. Welcoming is deeper than action. Welcoming is the gospel-renewed posture of our heart. That's what it is. The gospel-renewed posture of our heart. And it's not something we can muster up ourselves. It starts, again, with the secure and whole and, and guaranteed love of Christ. And the, and the beauty of it is that we, each week, we have the Lord's Supper. And it's an opportunity to experience the secure love of Christ for us. We're going to jump right in today. Listen to this verse from John six thirty-seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want us to focus this morning as we participate in the supper and the secure love of Christ. Listen to this. Again, Jesus says, as the, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Never. <laughs> There's a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, and here's what he has to say about this verse. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. Case closed. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off His heart to His own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up with Christ. Listen to this. If you don't listen to anything else this morning, hear this. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume of items that qualify us to approach Him. Nothing but coming to Him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with Him upon death. What brings us to the table this morning? Nothing but our resume of failures. That's it. And He will not cast us out. We're welcomed by the very nature of our need this morning. And so, in order to fence the table, as we call it, if you recognize that that's you, you're incapable. You, all you have to bring is a resume of failures and sins and mess-ups. Jesus Christ welcomes you in a gentle and lowly spirit. And it's all you need is a need. <laughs> it's all you need is to need Him. And if you believe that Jesus is the one in which the only one in which the power and the ability to overcome that thing, not through your own power, but because He died on the cross for those failures. He rose again, defeating sin and death and the devil. And He offers freely by grace that salvation to you. You've been baptized. You've made that profession of faith. You're invited to come by no means other than your failures this morning. Now, this, now if you 
don't believe that. You don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, or you don't believe that He could do that. Or if you have a sin in your life, you refuse to confess. The Scriptures make it clear. Do not participate. Make that choice. Don't eat the bread. Don't drink the wine or the juice. Don't do that. And so I'd echo that same warning this morning. What we're going to do here is we're going to take a few moments. Let's evaluate our hearts. Let us go deep on our resume of failure. Let's do that. Let's go deep and thank the Lord for welcoming us anyway. And then I'll join us together with a prayer of blessing and we'll distribute the elements.